Well, let's take a look together at God's Word. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3, or chapter 2 rather, verses 13 through 20. You're certainly welcome to turn in your own Bibles. I think that's a, that's a great, great practice for sure. Um, but we do have the text available for you up on the PowerPoint as well. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. Let's read this. Uh, I'll read this, and then we will uh, pray just briefly again and dig into God's word together. So here's, here's what we read. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of God. Father, we do commit now our time to you as we open up what you say is the living and active word of God that penetrates and and divides joint and uh, marrow. Uh, Father, we pray that you would look into our hearts and that today we would be honest about how we're responding to this message of the Christ who has come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt some of you have heard this before. There's a story told of a a man who was living in a town and uh, a storm was coming. You started hearing rumblings, you know, on the weather forecast about the perfect storm that was brewing. And in fact, It was all coming about. So the weathermen started saying, look, there's a storm coming. You better prepare for it. We recommend that if you're living in a house, you go somewhere where there's higher ground or relocate to a different place. Uh, And some people listened to that warning, but others said, now I'm going to stick around here and not going to pay attention. Well, as things uh, developed more and more and the storm actually came in and uh, rain started pouring down and inches upon inches of it and slowly the the water started rising up and so army tanks rolling through the town saying hey everybody jump on board these uh, these tanks and these trucks and we'll get you to safety and high ground and this particular individual said nah I'm trusting in God God will rescue me he'll deliver me he'll set me free God's got this and most people are evacuating, so they're, they're leaving town. Well, the waters get a little higher, and this guy lives in a two-story house, so he goes up, and the, the first floor actually is kind of covered in, in water, and things are looking even worse and worse. And here comes people from the Coast Guard on their boats in dinghies and other motorized vehicles saying, come on in, those of you who haven't left, we'll rescue you, we'll take you to safety. Come on in, and the guy from the window says, it's okay. I'm trusting in God. God's going to rescue me. He will deliver me. 
And so they go on. They can't force this individual to get into into their rescue vehicles. And, you know, soon it's up on the second floor and he's up on top of the roof. And the final set of people come through. There's helicopters. Get on board the helicopter. We're here to rescue you. I'm trusting in God. He'll rescue me. Well, next thing you know, the guy dies. Um, because there's no one there to rescue him any longer. And he's been taken away by this flood. And he appears before God. And he's a little upset. He said, God. I don't get it. Why didn't you rescue me? How come you didn't send anybody to save me? And you know where this is going, right? He says, what are you talking about? I gave you a weather forecast. And then I sent trucks. And then I sent boats. And I even sent a helicopter. And you just wouldn't listen to me. All these signs and provisions of God. And yet, at that moment when the rescue was right in front of them, he couldn't see it. Now, as we've been looking at the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, we have seen Isaiah and other prophets saying there is a Messiah coming. There is someone, the Son of God, who will be born. Here's where he's going to be born. Here's what he will be like. And by the way, he's not going to be the kind of person you think he's going to be. As we saw in those passages in Isaiah, he's nothing lovely to look at. You know, he was beaten and ridiculed and mocked, and the people who should be receiving him are ignoring him and not paying attention to him, almost like that person who had the rescuers coming to him and said, nah, I'm looking for something different. This is the son who was predicted, and when he arrives, some people respond in the right way. The Savior, the rescuer is here, and others simply don't pay attention to it, to their peril. And that's really the message of Christmas, is that Christ has come, the one who our souls were designed to find refuge in. We all need that. He is here. So the question is, how will you respond? We've been saying good news is coming, good news is coming the last three weeks in the book of Isaiah. And today we see good news has come, that the angels announced, here he is, He is born, the one who will rescue us. So how will you respond? So I want to look at this text and just go right through it and gauge different responses to the arrival of this Messiah. And the first response we see comes from the angels. And the angels, in verses 13 through 14, how do they respond? They respond with praise. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. If you have what some people call a biblical worldview, a a way of looking at the world through the lens of the, the scriptures and what the scriptures say are true and accurate, there is a spiritual element to this world. There's something more than what we can measure, as I often say, inside of a Petri dish. You can't, you can't measure everything. The, the Bible says that is a piece of our world and it's a glorious part of it. So we become scientists to explore the, the world that God has made that's good and fitting. And it's a reflection of who he is, a God of order and design and wonder and sometimes mystery. But there's more than just that. 
Angels all throughout the Bible are heavenly beings who serve God. They're in his presence. They're of an order different than man, and yet they're able to take on physical capacities. And if you read uh, throughout the Bible, you'll find that every time an angel shows up, how do people respond? They're afraid. So the, the cute little ornaments that you put on your tree with a little, you know, like this, not very intimidating. If an actual angel shows up, you start quaking in your boots because there's something about the presence. And they're in the very presence of God, and somehow it seems that they're maintaining that when they show up. And people are scared. They're terrified when these angels show up. In fact, if you've opened up to Luke chapter 2, you can see this. Even in the, the verses just before, uh, when they've announced what's going to happen, and if you look at verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. They're terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. They thought something bad was going to happen, but they have to say, give them the words, it's okay. Don't worry. In fact, we bring you good news. That us showing up, it's a good thing. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah that we've all been anxiously awaiting. He's come. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So these angels have access to God's presence in this unique way. How do these angelic beings respond to the birth of the Messiah? With praise. Glory to God in the highest heaven. The event that we've been waiting for for so long has finally come. They've been longing for this day. And he comes in the form of a baby. Uh, the, the glory of God, the substance, you know, glory as we've discussed before in the Hebrew, it, it has to do with substance. It's weighty. It's heavy. It's, it's real. It's not a fake substitute. You maybe order something online that's supposed to be a product that is the real thing. And you spent a lot of money for the real product. And here comes a fake substitute. Weeks later, you try to return it. You can't. Those people don't exist anymore. But that's not true for the Messiah. His, when you say glory, he's the real thing. He's heavy. He's weighty. They're saying glory to God. The substance, the very substance and essence of God was born in this manger. And so what's the right response for them? Glory, hallelujah. Praise be to God. The one that we've been waiting for for so long is finally here. You get a glimpse of their response in other places too. Here's Revelation chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. And this is a, a sense of what the angels are doing. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're caught up in the rapture, the, the, the 
the moment, the glory, the heaviness, the weightiness, the one we've been waiting for, he's here. Let's praise him. Now, it's hard to maintain that state, I understand. And there are different responses to the announcement that the Messiah has come. Just to consider a few uh, for you. I haven't written them there. I thought I did. That's my B. Um, a couple of things. What are other responses to this message? One I would suggest is apathy. Oh, who cares? You know, or I've heard it before. Yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, apathy, ah, uh, meaning without, and pathos, emotion. Who cares? It doesn't really make that big of a difference. So what? Might be one response that people have. The angels don't have that response. They can't contain themselves. A whole multitude shows up. The choir in the background. Amen, glory, hallelujah. You know? And some of us are like, yeah, whatever. Been there, done that. Apathy. Or there could be skepticism. You know, skeptical of whether or not this is really true. Did this happen? If it happened, what difference does it make? What about all the questions that I have around it? Just skeptical. I don't think it's really true. Is he who he said he was? Maybe he's not you know, just a good teacher, not the son of God. And here's the beauty of the Christian faith. Skeptics are welcome. <laughs> I, even, even apathetic people are welcome. You know, because you, you're come and you encounter with God, you may not remain apathetic. So, so keep coming. And as you're skeptical, keep asking questions. It's okay. As I've shared before, I have a, a friend who is from uh, a Muslim country, and it's the, the particular form of Islam that's pretty strict. And one of, at least by his report, and I've talked to other people from the Muslim faith before too that, that seem to say the same thing, that at least in their belief system, you don't ask questions. You certainly don't ask questions of God, and you don't ask questions about God. You just accept what has been revealed, even if you have some, some issues with it. One of the things that he found refreshing as he started dialoguing with this idea of who is Jesus and what's my response to him, he started asking some questions a little hesitantly of somebody who was of the Christian faith who said, I'll answer whatever questions I can. I don't have all the answers. But as he was trying to figure it out and kind of skeptical, not just about Christianity but about God, he found the freedom to do that. One of the things that attracted him actually to become a follower of Christ was the freedom to be able to ask those questions. If God is real, if this word is true, it'll stand up to your questions. You can ask them. It's okay. It doesn't mean we'll have all the answers. There is a whole bunch of mystery, but it's okay. If there is a God who's revealed himself in the Bible and disclosed most perfectly who he is in the person of his son, you can ask questions because one of the last things that we hear Jesus saying in his earthly existence is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a question. That's a gut-wrenching question. Have you forgotten me? And Jesus knew, that's why he came. But the angst and the weight of it, the glory of his sacrifice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or you could respond with cynicism. 
There's a lot of cynics in our world today. Um, I, I, I would guess a lot of the times cynicism is fed by disappointment. If you hear, for, uh, for example, some, um, some apologists and I've uh, referred probably to Tim Keller before again too, but in his book, The Reason for God, one of the things that he points out is most people reject belief in God, not just because they're concerned about some of the rational side of it, but they've been disappointed with him. Something happened in their life. And they're like, if there was a God, that wouldn't have happened. Or they attend a church and they see some of the hypocrisy from up front. And they grow cynical. This God you say changes lives, what about that one? And jaded. And the response is not one of praise, but cynicism. And we're all looking at the same event, right? I mean, you have to dialogue with this. Did this happen? Did it? But we're all looking, and there's different responses. You see the angels' response. You know, the demons have responses to the existence of God, too. They believe there's one God, and they shudder. It doesn't bring praise about for them. They're scared of him. What about you? The angels respond with praise in this text. There's a couple other responses that we see here. That's in 13 and 14, but in verse 14, we see that there is a response or an experience of peace for those on whom his favor rests. This is the announcement of the angels who are praising God. He brings peace. If his favor is upon you, one of the gifts that are given is peace. And peace is a lot like health. You really, it's hard to appreciate it until you lose it. You know, if everything's okay, sort of, and, and let's just call peace the absence of conflict for a moment. I know it's more than that. But in my little world, that's at least what it is. There's no conflict. Even if there is conflict, let's pretend like there's not conflict. Because then I feel like I'm at peace, right? And that's not really true, but it's the fabrication of peace. It's until that, that something happens. You know, there's a rift in a relationship or somebody, you're the target of somebody's dissatisfaction or you've created some sort of an upheaval or there's not peace. Or even physically speaking, you're in a time of war. If you grow up in, in a nation, in a country that's at peace, you really don't know how great it is to have peace until you're in war. So most of us probably today don't really understand on a national level, what that peace is like. Maybe for those of us Americans who are around or at least living here during 9-11, you get a sense of like, oh, some people live like that on a daily basis in nations around the world. And if somebody came and, de and declared that there is peace now, there's an end of the hostilities, that declaration means a lot more to people who've been experiencing conflict. So on a certain level, you can really only know the peace of Christ to the extent that you understand that you're an enemy of God in your sin until Christ has done business to pronounce you somebody who's a child of God and you know peace. It, you know, the, the problem, in a sense, with the good news of the gospel is that you don't know how good it is until you know how bad you are. Until you get a sense of the depths of your sin and your desperation— this is kind of a message that feels like, you know what, I think I'll just be apathetic. Because if God's rescued you from something that's not that great, eh, you got this. You could do it on your own, couldn't you? 
you're probably good enough to do it. I mean, I look at you, I'm like, you're, yeah, you guys, you're all good. But somehow, when you start really interacting with Christ, as we saw, he's not just a ruler of the kings of the earth like we saw in Revelation, but he's also, if you remember in Revelation, the one who knows your heart. He knows the depths of your desperate need for him. More than we ever will, even if we get a, very, a glimpse of it and we're, un, we're broken. That's really just a small portion of the offense that our sins are before God. We're enemies of the gospel, of God. We're at war. And some of us don't realize that our souls are in that sort of peril. And that peace was lost. You know the storyline back in the garden with Adam and Eve. And once they disobeyed God, then all of the consequences of what we call the fall are, 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 are visualized automatically. When you start blaming other people or hiding your sins or trying to pretend they don't exist, you're just being like Adam and Eve. We all experience that. We all have a loss of peace, not just with God, but with each other, with the systems around us, with the very creation. And there's a reason we need Roundup. Or if you're environmentally conscious, some substitute that doesn't damage the earth. It doesn't work right. Something's broken. We look around us, we see things are wrong. So the question is, who's going to fix it? Who will come to make things right? Who can give us peace? And that may not be an issue for you. It is for a lot of people. I know when I've had the chance to travel abroad too, and in, in, in some countries more than others, you see this aching desire to be at peace because the systems of belief don't create an easy pathway for it. There are people who just want to know peace. And when you come and you say, look, we believe there's one who was born who brought peace. You can know peace with God. And it was secured and sealed by what this man did, Jesus Christ. For those who grasp that, there is a sense of freedom that just can't be known otherwise. And Jill made reference to conversation we were having with an English student. And that piece of it, I heard come out as she's had some amazing things happen recently. And she's trying to unpack a little bit about what this all means she had a dream where Jesus showed up two years ago. And then two weeks ago, there he was again. This is a person who is skeptical by nature, a scientist. And she doesn't know what to do with this. And let me tell you, as she described those scenes, about five or six Bible verses came to mind that confirmed that Jesus revealed himself in a dream to her, things that she couldn't even know. As we read some of these, she started weeping. This is not an emotional person. This is an apathetic person without emotion, a skeptical person, perhaps even cynical. And yet, Christ is revealing himself to her in a way that unfortunately doesn't fit in most of our theological boxes. But nonetheless, here he is. And as we opened up and read the scriptures together, there was an excitement and a wonder and a fear too of what's next. What does this mean? And we're walking alongside and we'll get to see what happens next. I don't know, but one of the things mentioned was this idea of peace, forgiveness. How can I really know forgiveness? And listen to this. Some of you may 
have experienced this before and, and sort of know what it's like, but in Psalm 32, David, who, created, who committed a fairly significant sin and, and brought a lot of damage in people's lives, he recognizes how blessed it is to know forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. That's the good thing. He knows peace with God, but there was a time he didn't, and this is what it was doing to him. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. What do you do with that? Well, David says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What's the price for that forgiveness? The Bible tells us it's Christ's death. That's what secured in actual time the forgiveness that David experienced when he was honest with God. And he could get that peace restored. And the Bible tells us, actually in Ephesians 2.14, that he himself, Christ, is our peace. All the other peace is the kind of stuff that I sort of settle for sometimes. Just a fabricated pretend peace. This is a deep, lasting, abiding assurance that you could never earn the favor of God. That Christ himself has done it. That, that concept called grace in the Bible that's so hard for us to understand. It doesn't make any sense. This is something only God could do. Peace. The concept of shalom, we could say so much about that. In the Old Testament, peace on every single level. It's embodied in Jesus, this baby who was born. On a vertical level, a horizontal level. And we start seeing that worked out, and we're striving toward it. For sure. So when the angels announced this, this is good news. Those on whom his favor rests, no peace. Now there's a couple of other responses. And the next one is the shepherds themselves in 16 through 18. What do they do? Well, it's, they see and then they tell. Uh, look, at, look at their response. As the shepherds hear this, let's go to Bethlehem. And see, really in verse 15, see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, they found Mary and the baby, and when they'd seen him in verse 17, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. That's what the shepherds do. The first thing they do is they go and they check it out. I mean, you'd probably do that if a bunch of angels revealed something to you. It's kind of natural to say, well, we better do what they say. But they do, they go, they see, they hear, and so they, they investigate. Is it really true? Did it, did it really happen? Is there somebody this is describing? And like I said earlier, it's okay to investigate. And I encourage you to do that with, with the Bible and with truth. I mean, there some of you know Labrie that was uh, in Switzerland, uh, a guy named Francis Schaeffer who said, look, if all that God says is true, if, if it's really true, then it's okay to ask these questions. He was quite the intellectual and people who are maybe of the more intellectual variety, but even just seeking something existential, right? The encounter, the experience of God, would go to Labrie and stay in the chalet, and they would ask any question they want to, and they would discover together, is this really true? There's no reason to be afraid to ask, if in fact it's true. And they see, 
And of course, they have to get into a position to be able to see. This makes me feel, think of uh, the story of Zacchaeus. You know, the wee little man. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he climbs up into a, a tree. He hears Jesus is coming to town. And one of the greatest, I think, things that he does is, well, he's short. He can't quite see. He wants, you know, he's maybe a couple, couple people deep in a line. So he climbs up. Commendable. He gets himself into a position to see Jesus. And it's when he's in that position and he looks that Jesus locks eyes with him. And he says, hey, you. Oh, what? Yeah, you. It can't be me. See, I'm the tax collector. People hate me. People despise me. Nobody wants to be my friend. Or at least the only friends that I have are the other people that nobody else likes. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, you're exactly who I'm looking for. I'm coming to your house today. So really? Ah, didn't expect that. And they have a big feast and, and Zacchaeus is changed in that encounter in such a way that he doesn't just receive forgiveness of sins, but he wants to make right everything he's done wrong in the past. If I've cheated anybody, I'm going to, I'm going to get back to them more than they even deserve. That's kind of the encounter with God that changes the heart. And so he sees it and then he begins to tell just like the shepherds do what happened. When you, when you encounter that, have that encounter with Christ, you can't help but share it with others. It just comes out of you because you've been changed. Some of you remember Darlene Mason, and she, she, she sh uh, shared her story of how she became a follower of Christ. This was her life verse, Mark 5, 19. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Said that. That's, she, she came from a context where there weren't many people following Christ in her family. And she wanted that. I get to go and share and tell. That's a common response to grasping the glory, the gravity, the heaviness, the weightiness of the good news. In the beginning, for sure. But the shepherds don't simply investigate. After checking it out, they respond just like the angels do in verse 20. The shepherds return glorifying and praising God. They're doing the same thing the angels were now. They see, they tell, and then they praise. That's their response to the gospel message. Christ is not just an object of study. I mean, he can be. You're welcome to investigate. But he is most understood when he's praised. There's something about, even when you don't have everything figuring out, saying, I'm going to praise this God, that, that brings you to a different level of understanding and discernment, that validates, that, that opens up a whole new reality. It's real. It's true. But you can't quite know it if he's only an object of study. And that's the invitation. And the shepherds take it and they praise God. Now, last response we'll look at is Mary's. And you see this in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That is so human, isn't it? She's trying to figure this all out. You heard the song, Mary, Did You Know? She's a wife, she's a mom, and almost everything is out of her control. Her, in her experience, can you, I mean, it, it's inconceivable to imagine if you're great with child, you have to get on a donkey and try, this is before Lyft and Uber or anything like that. 
you know, it's pretty rugged, pretty rough, and then you show up and there's no real place for you to have your child, not even if you go the doula route at home or anything. There's not sanitary. There's no guarantees. There's nobody there. There's no backup plan if things, things go, go awry. Imagine the, the terror. I, I mean, for those of you who are, are mothers, and this, this is a scary time. Nothing is in control. And she has to wonder, you know, what's going on with all this? Because on the one hand, it's very earthy. You know, they're, he's lying in the manger, which, which is a, with, cat, with you know, farm animals around. And it seems so mundane and earthy. And then you've got angels shouting out at the same time. It's, this is a huge experience. It's probably hard to put it all together. What in the world is going on? And so Mary has to take some time to digest all of this and to take it all in. And frankly, that would be a lifelong process for her. You get glimpses of Mary's relationship with her son when he grows up and starts doing his public ministry and he's talking to a bunch of people and they say, hey, your mom's outside. And he's like, hey, you're my mom and my whatever. And she's got to be thinking, what in the world is wrong with this relationship here? I birthed you. Don't you remember the manger? I'm your mom. It's confusing. There's a whole bunch of mystery. And even, even to the point on the cross when he's dying and he shows the affection for her. The appreciation by saying, this is my, you know, woman, behold your son to John, the beloved disciple. He knows that on the cross, we aren't just getting the savior of the world, but her, her son is dying unjustly. And he knows that she needs that kind of tender care. But on Mary's experiential side, she's just trying to figure it all out. And she has this ongoing interaction in the course of her life with who is this son of mine and how do I fit into this plan and why is he dying and what's next? And yet she is fa the favored one, right? I have a lot of books on my shelf. I like books. They're my friends. Uh, they're old friends. I like to revisit them from time to time and check out what's going on. And I have a collection in addition to some intellectual reasons to feel like I can believe in this stuff of existential encounters. I've, I've encountered God in ways that I feel like can only be explained by there is a God. <laughs> that Christ is real, that the Holy Spirit exists and he is filling and using and convicting and regenerating. And I can see it in others, but I've experienced it myself as well. But I'm still learning. I'm still thinking I'm still processing, I'm still changing, I'm still exploring, and by God's grace, hopefully I'm still maturing and processing and figuring this out. I'm still wondering, even today as I stand here, how is this all going to turn out? How, how does my life fit into this master plan? Because there are so many things outside of my control right now, I just don't get. And I'm, I'm confused, I'm kind of contemplating, okay, God. I want to enter the same kind of wonder Mary did and say, I don't know what you got next, but I'm going to trust. I mean, what else can I do? But enter, that, that's, that's a response we're all invited to, especially as we come back to this story again and say, hey, look, we don't have it all. There's some stuff that's been revealed, that's, but there's still some mystery. And yet, if there's a God who's given his son, 
in this kind of way, entered into our mess, and even his very mother says, I'm trying to figure it out, then it's okay that you're there as well. But at least you're looking in the right direction. You're coming to me. You're saying, God, I don't get this. I'm still wondering how it's all going to turn out. And certainly that was true here in the the Gospels. Uh, In Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to finish with just a couple of thoughts from this. In Luke chapter 1, we see some of the same kind of process going on, trying to figure things out, and then God's response to that as well. Luke chapter 1, verses, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. And then this final word here, for nothing is impossible with God. God is writing storylines here that simply don't fit. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem possible. But the Christmas message is nothing is impossible with God. And so there's another response, perhaps, that we're all called to recognize again, that if we receive this promised one, this one that we've been awaiting, the suffering servant, nothing is impossible. I mean, God... God can do all things. What that looks like and how it works out is a bit of a mystery, and it's not always a straight line. But I can guarantee that as we look at Christ, we can say along with this angel, nothing is impossible with God. That's the angel who's in God's presence, who's probably witnessed some of the craziest things you can imagine, like the existence of our very world with, the, with one word. Do you think that's possible? just to speak and have all the order from chaos? We live in a world that bears the marks of God's glory everywhere. The only question is, are we seeing it? How do we respond to it? And the invitation, of course, at Christmas season is to enter into that reality and say, okay, God, do what you will. Open up my eyes so that I can see and help me to know that nothing is impossible with you. Father, I do pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we started with that illustration of a man who said, God's going to rescue me, and he was waiting for something spectacular, and yet you worked so often in just the ordinary, the mundane. You sent a child to save us. 
And at the same time, we have this tension, understanding that even in that very simple sort of way, you do extraordinary things, but we, we, we want to be faithful to what you have revealed to us today and respond accordingly, not just with praise. But if we don't know peace today, maybe we need to confess that we're, there's something wrong. You are the one, ultimately, who's been offended. Help us to run quickly to that. And so that we can see and, and certainly tell, and perhaps we're living in contemplation, figuring this all out, but like Mary, we're going to the one who created everything to say, God, give me understanding and give me faith even when I don't understand. We want that kind of trust in you today, and we know this is something that you give to us, so we ask for it. Father, help our unbelief and help us to see that good news, in fact, has come. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.